Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. Tonight's story, On the Gull's Road, by Willa Cap. It often happens that one or another of my friends stops before a red chalk drawing in my study and asks me where I ever found so lovely a creature. I've never told the story of that picture to anyone and the beautiful woman on the wall until yesterday in all these twenty years has spoken to no one but me. Yesterday, a young painter, a countryman of mine, came to consult me on a matter of business, and, upon seeing my drawing of Alexandra Ebbing, straightway forgot his errand. He examined the date upon the sketch and asked me very earnestly if I could tell him whether the lady were still living. When I answered him, he stepped back from the picture and said slowly, So long ago, she must have been very young. She was happy. As to that, who can say? About any one of us, I replied. Out of all that is supposed to make happiness, she had very little. We returned to the object of his visit, but when he bade me goodbye at the door, his troubled gaze again went back to the drawing, and it was only by turning sharply about that he took his eyes away from her. I went back to my study fire, and as the rain kept away less impetuous visitors, I had a long time in which to think of Mrs. Ebling. I even got out the little box she gave me, which I had not opened for years, and when Mrs. Hemway brought my tea, I had barely time to close the lid and defeat her disapproving gaze. My young countryman's perplexity, as he looked at Mrs. Ebling, had recalled to me the delight and pain she gave me when I was of his years. I sat looking at her face and trying to see it through his eyes, freshly as I saw it, first upon the deck of the Germania, twenty years ago. Was it her loveliness, I often ask myself, or her loneliness, or her simplicity, or was it merely my own youth? Was her mystery only that of the mysterious north out of which she came? I still feel that she was very different from all the beautiful and brilliant women I have known, as the night is different from the day, or as the sea is different from the land. But this is our story as it comes back to me. For two years I had been studying Italian and working in the capacity of clerk to the American legation at Rome, and I was going home to secure my first consular appointment. Upon boarding my steamer at Genoa, I saw my luggage into my cabin and then started for a rapid circuit of the deck. Everything promised well, the boat was thinly peopled, even for a July crossing. The decks were roomy, the day was fine, the sea was blue. I was sure of my appointment, and best of all, 
I was coming back to Italy. All these things were in my mind when I stopped sharply before Shay's lounge, placed sideways near the stern. Its occupant was a woman, apparently ill, who lay there with her eyes closed, and in her open arm was a chubby little red-haired girl, asleep. I can still remember that first glance at Mrs. Ebling, and how I stopped as a wheel does when the band slips. Her splendid, vigorous body lay still and relaxed under the loose folds of her clothing. Her white throat and arms and red-gold hair were drenched with sunlight. Such hair as it was, wayward as some kind of gleaming seaweed that curls and undulates with the tide. A moment gave me her face, the high cheekbones, the thin cheeks, the gentle chin arching back to a girlish throat and the singular loveliness of the mouth. Even though it flashed through me that the mouth gave the whole face its peculiar beauty and distinction, it was proud and sad and tender and strangely calm. The curve of the lips could not have been cut more cleanly with the most delicate instrument, and whatever shade of feeling passed over them seemed to partake of their exquisiteness. But I am anticipating. While I stood stupidly staring, as if at twenty-five I had never before seen a beautiful woman, the whistles broke into a hoarse scream, and the deck under us began to vibrate. The woman opened her eyes, and the little girl struggled into a sitting position, rolled out of her mother's arm, and ran to the deck rail. After putting my chair near the stern, I went forward to see the gangplank up and did not return until we were dragging out to sea at the end of a long tow line. The woman in the chaise lounge was still alone. She lay there all day, looking at the sea. The little girl, Karen, played noisily about the deck. Occasionally she returned and struggled up into the chair, plunged her head, round and red as a little pumpkin, against her mother's shoulder in an impetuous embrace, and then struggled down again with a lively flourishing of arms and legs. Her mother took such opportunities to pull up the child's socks or to smooth the fiery little braids. Her beautiful hands, rather large and very white, played about the little girl with a quieting tenderness. Karen chattered away in Italian and kept asking for her father, only to be told that he was busy. When any of the ship's officers passed, they stopped for a word with my neighbor and heard the first mate address her as Mrs. Ebling. When they spoke to her, she smiled appreciatively and answered in a low, faltering Italian. But I fancied that she was glad when they passed on and left her to her fixed contemplation of the sea. Her eyes seemed to drink the color of it all day long, and after every interruption they went back to it. There was a kind of pleasure in watching her satisfaction, a kind of excitement and wondering what the water made her remember or forget. She seemed not to wish to talk to anyone, but I knew I should like to hear whatever she might be thinking. One could catch some hint of her thoughts, I imagined, from the shadows that came and went across her lips, like the reflection of light clouds. She had a pile of books beside her, but she did not read, and neither could I. I gave up trying at last and watched the sea, very conscious of her presence, almost of her thoughts. When the sun dropped low and shone in her face, 
I rose and asked if she would like me to move her chair. She smiled and thanked me, but said the sun was good for her. Her yellow hazel eyes followed me for a moment and then went back to the sea. After the first bugle sounded for dinner, a heavy man in uniform came up the deck and stood beside the chaise lounge, looking down at its two occupants with a smile of satisfied possession. The breast of his trim coat was hidden by waves of soft blonde beard, as long as heavy as a woman's hair, which blew about his face in glittering profusion. He wore a large turquoise ring upon the thick hand that he rubbed good-humoredly over the little girl's head. To her, he spoke Italian, but he and his wife conversed in some Scandinavian tongue. He stood stroking his fine beard until the second bugle blew, and then bent stiffly from his hips like a soldier and patted his wife's hand as it lay on the arm of her chair. He hurried down the deck, taking stock of the passengers as he went, and stopped before a thin girl with frizzed hair and a lace coat, asking her a facetious question in thick English. They began to talk about Chicago and went below. Later I saw him at the head of his table in the dining room, the befrizzed Chicago lady on his left. They must have got a famous start at luncheon, for by the end of the dinner, Ebling was peeling figs for her and presenting them on the end of a fork. The doctor confided to me that Ebling was the chief engineer and the dandy of the boat, but this time he would have to behave himself, for he had brought a sick wife along for the voyage. She had a bad heart valve, he added, and was in a serious way. After dinner, Ebling disappeared, presumably to his engines, and at ten o'clock, when the stewardess came to put Mrs. Ebling to bed, I helped her to rise from her chair, and the second mate ran up and supported her down to the cabin. About midnight, I found the engineer in the card room, playing with the doctor, an Italian naval officer and the commodore of a Long Island yacht club. His face was even pinker than it had been at dinner, and his fine beard was full of smoke. I thought a long while about Ebling and his wife before I went to sleep. The next morning we tied up at Naples to take on our cargo and went on shore for the day. I, however, entirely escaped the ubiquitous engineer, whom I saw lunching with the Long Island Commodore at a hotel in the Santa Lucia. When I returned to the boat in the early evening, the passengers had gone down to dinner, and I found Mrs. Ebling quite alone upon the deserted deck. I approached her and asked whether she had had a dull day. She looked up smiling and shook her head as if her Italian had quite failed her. I saw that she was flushed with excitement, and her yellow eyes were shining like two clear topazes. Dull? Oh no. I love to watch Naples from the sea in this white heat. She has just lain there on her hillside among the vines, and laughed for me all day long. I've been able to pick out many of the places I like best. I felt that she was really going to talk to me at last. She had turned to me frankly as to an old acquaintance and seemed not to be hiding from me anything of what she felt. I sat down in a glow of pleasure and excitement and asked her if she knew Naples well. Oh, yes, I lived there for a year after I was first married. My husband has a great many friends in Naples, but he was at sea most of the time, so I went about alone. Nothing helps one to know a city like that. 
I came first by sea, like this, directly to Naples from Finmark. I had never been south before. Mrs. Ebling stopped and looked over my shoulder. Then, with a quick, eager glance at me, she said abruptly, It was like a baptism of fire. Nothing has ever been quite the same since. Imagine how this bay looked to a Finmark girl. It seemed like the overture to Italy. And then one goes up the country, song by song and wine by wine. Mrs. Ebling sighed. Ah, yes, it must be fine to follow it. I have never been away from the seaports myself. We live now in Genoa. The deck steward brought her tray, and I moved forward a little and stood by the rail. When I looked back, she smiled and nodded to let me know that she was not missing anything. I could feel her intentness as keenly as if she were standing beside me. The sun had disappeared over the high ridge behind the city, and the stone pines stood black and flat against the fires of the afterglow. The lilac haze that hung over the long, lazy slopes of Vesuvius warmed with golden light, and films of blue vapor began to float down towards Baie. The sky, the sea, and the city between them turned into a shimmering violet, fading grayer as the lights began to glow like luminous pearls along the waterfront, the necklace of an irreclaimable queen. Behind me I heard a low exclamation, a slight stifled sound, but it seemed the perfect vocalization of that weariness with which we at last let go of beauty, after we have held it until the senses are darkened. When I turned to her again, she seemed to have fallen asleep. That night, as we were moving out to sea and the tail lights of Naples were winking across the widening stretch of black water, I helped Mrs. Ebling to the foot of the stairway. She drew herself up from her chair with effort and leaned on me warily. I could have carried her all night without fatigue. May I come and talk to you tomorrow? I asked. She did not reply at once. Like an old friend, I added. She gave me her languid hand, and her mouth, set with the exertion of walking, softened altogether. Grazia, she murmured. I returned to the deck and joined a group of my countrywomen, who, primed with inexhaustible information, were discussing the baseness of Renaissance art. They were intelligent and alert, and as they leaned forward in their deck chairs under the circle of light, their faces recalled to me Rembrandt's picture of a clinical lecture. I heard them through against my will, and then went to the stern to smoke and to see the last of the island lights. The sky had clouded over, and a soft, melancholy wind was rushing over the sea. I could not help thinking how disappointed I would be if rain should keep Mrs. Ebling in her cabin tomorrow. My mind played constantly with her image. At one moment she was very clear and directly in front of me. The next, she was far away. Whatever else I thought about, some part of my consciousness was busy with Mrs. Ebling, hunting for her, finding her, losing her, then groping again. How was it that I was so conscious of whatever she might be feeling, that when she sat still behind me and watched the evening sky, I had had a sense of speed and change, almost of danger. And when she was tired and sighed, 
I had wished for night and loneliness. Though when we are young, we seldom think much about it. There is now and again a golden day when we feel a sudden, arrogant pride in our youth, in the lightness of our feet and the strength of our arms, in the warm fluid that courses so surely within us, when we are conscious of something powerful and mercurial in our breasts, which comes up wave after wave and leaves us irresponsible and free. All the next morning I felt this flow of life, which continually impelled me toward Mrs. Ebling. After the merest greeting, however, I kept away. I found it pleasant to thwart myself, to measure myself against a current that was sure to carry me with it in the end. I was content to let her watch the sea, the sea that seemed now to have come into me, warm and soft, still and strong. I played shuffleboard with the Commodore, who was anxious to keep down his figure, and ran about the deck with the stout legs of the little pumpkin-colored Karen about my neck. It was not until the child was having her afternoon nap below that I at last came up and stood beside her mother. "'You are better today,' I exclaimed, looking down at her white gown. She colored unreasonably, and I laughed with a familiarity which she must have accepted as the mere foolish noise of happiness, or it would have seemed impertinent. We talked at first of a hundred trivial things, and we watched the sea. The coast of Sardinia had lain to our port for some hours, and would lie there for hours to come, now advancing in rocky promontories, now advancing in rocky promontories, now retreating behind blue bays. It was the naked south coast of the island, and though our course held very near the shore, not a village or habitation was visible. There was not even a goatherd's hut hidden away among the low pinkish sand hills. Pinkish sand hills and yellow headlands, with dull-colored scrubby bushes massed about their bases and following the dried watercourses. A narrow strip of beach glistened like white paint between the purple sea and the umber rock, and the whole island lay gleaming in the yellow sunshine and translucent air. Not a wave broke on that fringe of white sand. Not the shadow of a cloud played across the bare hills. In the air about us there was no sound but that of a vessel moving rapidly through absolutely still water. She seemed like some great sea animal, swimming silently, her head well up. The sea before us was so rich and heavy and opaque that it might have been lapis lazuli. It was the blue of legend, simply the color that satisfies the soul like sleep. And it was of the sea we talked, for it was the substance of Mrs. Ebling's story. She seemed always to have been swept along by ocean streams, warm or cold, and to have hovered about the edge of great waters. She was born and had grown up in a little fishing town on the Arctic Ocean. Her father was a doctor, a widower, who lived with his daughter and who divided his time between his books and his fishing rod. Her uncle was skipper on a coasting vessel, and with him she had made many trips along the Norwegian coast. But she was always reading and thinking about the blue seas of the south. 
There was a curious old woman in our village, Dame Erickson, who had been in Italy in her youth. She had gone to Rome to study art and had copied a great many pictures there. She was well-connected but had little money, and as she grew older and poorer, she sold her pictures one by one, until there was scarcely a well-to-do family in our district that did not own one of Dame Erickson's paintings. But she brought home many other strange things. A little orange tree which she cherished until the day of her death, and bits of colored marble and seashells and pieces of coral and a thin flask full of water from the Mediterranean. When I was a little girl, she used to show me her things and tell me about the South, about the coral fissures and the pink islands and the smoking mountains and the old underground Naples. I suppose the water in her flask was like any other, but it never seemed so to me. It looked so elastic and alive that I used to think if someone unsealed the bottle, something penetrating and fruitful might leap out and work an enchantment over Finmar. Lars Ebling, I learned, was one of her father's friends. She could remember him from the time when she was a little girl, and he, a dashing young man, who used to come home from the sea and make a stir in the village. After he got his promotion to an Atlantic liner and went south, she did not see him until the summer she was twenty, when he came home to marry her. That was five years ago. The little girl, Karen, was three. From her talk, one might have supposed that Ebling was proprietor of the Mediterranean and its adjacent lands, and could have kept her away at his pleasure. Her own rights in him she seemed not to consider. But we wasted very little time on Lars Ebling. We talked to like two very young persons, of arms and men, of the sea beneath us and the shores that washed. We were carried a little beyond ourselves, for we were in the presence of the things of youth that never change, fleeing past them. Tomorrow they would be gone, and no effort of will or memory could bring them back again. All about us was the sea of great adventure, and below us, caught somewhere in its gleaming meshes, the bones of nations and navies, nations and navies that gave youth its hope and made life something more than a hunger of the bowels. The unpeopled Sardinian coast folded gently before us like something left over out of a world that was gone, a place that might well have had no later news since the corn ships brought the tidings of act. We'll continue the story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to feature on the show. You can send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>